Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing public memory, digital media, and the politics of race in Mexico. Our guest is Dr. Xiomara Berenice Cervantes Gomez. She's an assistant professor of Spanish and Portuguese at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. As a transdisciplinary queer and performance theorist, she researches and writes at the interstices between Latin American and U.S. Latinx cultural studies continental philosophy, performance studies, queer theory, and contemporary literature. Dr. Cervantes Gomez received her PhD in Spanish and Latin American studies at the University of Southern California. She also holds a master's in theological studies in religions of the Americas from Harvard Divinity School and a BA from the University of California, Riverside. She currently serves on the editorial board of Women in Language and has recently served as co-chair of the Latin American Studies Association Sexuality Section. Simara, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you so much, Juan, for inviting me and for such a very generous uh, introduction. So <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Of course. Um, I want to start by asking you, could you tell us more about your research interests? Um, why do these topics interest you and why are they an important area to study? What I study is experience. Uh, it is the study of experiences and what it, I describe as affective experiences uh, in my own work, that, that, that is the language I use, uh, which is a study of how bodies react, uh, feel, sense, uh, encounter all, all of all the verbs and words. Uh, so that lends itself to so many other disciplines uh, that extend beyond my own specialization in performance studies, uh, queer theory, and cultural studies. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I think about it more broadly of I study experience, that allows my work to be able to be read much more broadly beyond my own respective disciplines. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. And the article that we're discussing today, uh, Where Blackness Dies, The Aesthetics of a Massacre and the Violence of Remembering, was published in the Journal of Visual Culture, mm -hmm. right? So um, it's sort of a, diff a different audience there as well. Right. Um, so it's published in the Journal of Visual Culture in 2021. So it's fresh off the, the digital press. Yes. Um, could you give us a brief history of this particular essay? So like when you began working on it, how did the ideas originate? How do they change in sort of the process of, of research and, and writing? Right. That... That's a very good question. I was, like you said, this was a different audience. This was a different way of writing for me. Um, I was not expecting to ever write this uh, essay. And yet it it just sort of found me. I, I was working on um, archival work for my current book, uh, which is titled Pasivo, Risks of Exposure, uh, in bottom Mexicanist performance. It's my uh, shameless plug. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, I was trying to put this within the context of uh, death in Mexico. And so looking at larger massacres and um, I can, of course I had heard of the 2010 Tamaulipas massacre. I remember uh, vaguely uh, hearing about it in, in the media 
Um, and as I described in the first paragraph of, of the article, uh, it began with the photograph. It began with the, this, I saw several Im uh, images of that little boy that's in the, uh, that you see reprinted in the article. And, and that just struck me and I kept, and I clicked it and it was always the same um, sub caption that he was at his father's funeral. And I, I just was not expecting to encounter this. And it, it, again, I experienced something in that moment. So while I was looking for information to help me about a book that's going to be about queerness and performance and death in Mexico, uh, here I had stumbled across uh, something that, uh, that stuck with me, that I hate to use the word haunt when we're talking about a massacre, but for lack of a better word right now, haunted me. I just, I kept remembering that little boy and, you know, we, we as researchers, we sometimes have to just, you know, throw up our arms and let our research take us where it wants to take us. And, right. and that's how I arrived at, at this work. Right. Right. Yeah. So you, um, you mentioned the 2010 Tamaulipas massacre and that becomes, um, sort of the flashpoint to then talk about the the digital altar that you analyze in your article. Um, could you give us a, a brief sense of like the context or uh, what the 2010 Tamaulipas massacre was? Because it seems like it's it's important um, as an intersection of also a lot of uh, political and social issues in Mexico, right? Including like, narco warfare and the setas and mm -hmm. um, Central American migration through through the country as well. Right. I mean, to situate that massacre, um, we have to think about it alongside the several other massacres that are always happening. Um, and so we have to situate it in a culture that already is very familiar with this type of brutality. Right. Um, and very familiar with the effects of narcos and narco gangs such as the Setas. Mm -hmm. What was striking about this one was the manner in which they found the victims. Um, they were ceremoniously lined up execution style, all with their hands tied behind their back with the shot to the back of the head. And um, in this barn, and you know, I had saw the images that were printed, and they print these in Mexican newspapers um, of how exactly how they found the bodies, and there are the bodies. Um, and of course, those images they circulate. They, uh, you know, and that caught a lot of media attention of just the the way in which they found these victims. Um, all of whom being migrants on their uh, journey to the United States. So, you know, we find them already in a vulnerable situation, um, entrusting their lives with people to lead them on this journey or entrusting their lives to the whatever environmental factors are that, that could impact them. So these are one of the risks they they unfortunately do encounter. And like I said, it's not uncommon. Yeah. So for this to strike a chord at a national level, we have to think about, okay, what made this different in comparison to the killings that happen every day? 
I mean, there have always been activists protesting against this type of violence. But because it struck a chord with the media, of course, that that trickles down into academia. So this started striking a chord with academics. Um, and, and that's where things started getting sticky, where we, where we start debating about, you know, what is a proper reading of how like this, this happened. And it's like, these are people's lives or lives that are lost. Uh, but what struck a chord with them is that it almost seemed like they, because they have been. My, as I argue, we have become so numb to the fact that, again, this violence is not uncommon, that for us to be surprised means we have to stop thinking about all of that. And as I describe and critique the editor for her response of why a digital alter, uh, it was out of shock that this has this happens in Mexico. So that that was almost like the effect that happened in academia as if we were blind to this. No, we weren't blind to this. But nonetheless, they acted as if they were. Right. It seems that the exceptionalization of this moment, the making it like, oh, well, this struck a chord, this is so significant, in some way erases the fact that this happens a lot, right? That there are all these other instances. Right. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's in, in foregrounding or trying to draw attention to what seems like a quote-unquote important issue, you're also erasing the fact that this is a pervasive, uh, pervasive issue as well. Exactly. So speaking of like academics dealing with these um, aspects, one of the, the sort of key terms that you mobilize in your analysis um, is Sayak Valencia's idea of core capitalism, mm-hmm. which in some ways is about diagnosing this pervasive violence. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little more about why that that term is helpful for you as you're analyzing through through this, and and then for thinking about the these aspects or these issues in visual culture as well? So, you know, for those uh, listening that are not familiar with gore capitalism, is um, my paraphrasing and interpretation of at least how I understand uh, Valencia's argument is that. Death has become a profitable business. It is a capitalist structure at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, precisely for the reasons I have been describing. We have become consumers of gore. Um, and consuming in the sense of all things that consumption involve. Of the, the visual encounter with it. We allow our, our bodies, to our senses to visually absorb this information by just passing a newsstand, by the mere fact that it's printed on um, that the front page of a newspaper. Um, the fact that we buy this newspaper, that newspaper uh, now profits off of, of this image. And so death has become a business. And, you know, the main contributors to all of this then are those who benefit from this type of economic wealth and power, um, primarily the state, the police, and narco gangs. Right, right. And there's something about the um, the fact that we become consumers of violence that, A, to, to what you were mentioning earlier, it numbs us to it, right? Um, but then it also um, cheapens or 
yeah, erases the the actual lives, right? It's it's something that because it's oh, it was forty some killed here and seventy something killed here. Right. Um, it people become statistics and people exactly uh, get sort of reduced down to whatever uh, whatever number data. they are. Yeah, yeah. They get, yeah, it's all numbers. They get reduced to numbers. Yeah, yeah, and all of that is driven sometimes, as you mentioned, like purely by profit-making schemes, right? It's about mm-hmm. selling the newspaper, selling the mm-hmm. like l- latest uh, narco-novella or something like that, and, and it ignores the... Right. I mean, again, it trickles into so many other industries. I mean, just like it, it's showing up on the news. Um, you know, music artists that are creating... Uh, there, there's a subgenre of cumbia called narco-cumbia, and it's like musicians that are somehow connected to the narco gangs and so like they're they're rapping into cumbia about like yeah we did this job um on this like for like they'll brag in the songs about like what their recent killings were and you know so consumers of music so it does it trickles down so many other different industries than just the photograph that's uh printed on the newspaper of course but um yeah, and we consume it in all these various different ways. Right, right. I was even thinking of um, um, Hector Maya's work on the like how so, certain social media platforms will have content moderation, mm-hmm. but then they will have no content moderation for the display of particularly like Global South subjects de- exactly. and death. Um, that would just will stay on and continuously be shared mm-hmm. because it's a uh, it's very profitable to sort of perpetuate that idea of like, well, these killings happen all the time. So why would we be taking right. out all of these images? So and some um, recent scholars have described that as um, you know trauma porn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, or this thing we've called sensationalism before, and you know, black studies has already named this before. We mean porno troping. This is like we we all have a different word for what this is, and you know, what it is is we, the body and suffering is a spectacle, and we like looking, just like we like looking at that car accident we pass by on the street. Right. 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 So the specific project um, that you look at in this article is related to the 2010 Tamaulipas massacre. Uh, it was called these uh, 72 migrantes, the 72 migrants. Sort of, it was a digital art altar project um, in response to that. So can you give us a, a sense of what this altar project was, who, who made it, what it was made for, and, and what, how did it come about? Yeah, so uh, as I said, this because the massacre had shocked so many people, um, including journalists. And, you know, typically when these massacres happen, like I said, there are so many. We get the print in the newspaper, okay, uh, 10 were killed in this time. Here are the 10 of them. They, this is how old they were. This is their town or this is the country they're from. Here's their headshot. Um, because this had, uh, garnered so much attention that it could happen at this magnitude and then in such a, what was perceived as such a gorish way, um, uh, the journalist, uh, Alma Guillermo Prieto decided we needed more than just what we typically see in, in the ways that we honor, um, or lack thereof. Uh, victims of this horrific violence. And so true to form, uh, an altar, 
uh, you know, uh, we, it, it is, as I say, the article, it is not foreign whatsoever to Mexican culture. And so, of course, in ofrenda un altar and, um, but it needs to be visual. Everybody needs to see it. Everybody needs to have access to it. Like, we need to really do justice to these victims. And so this was done by inviting 72 Mexican writers and journalists to write something for each one of the victims, including those that were never named. So, um, and, and there were 72 photographs that were included, uh, though they were not able to even get access to family photos, um, except for a very limited few. Um, and this was a digital altar, um, and people were able to donate to a fund or like purchase a candle that you would normally like a virtual candle that you would normally put on an altar. Um, and those proceeds, I believe went to, um, families of the victims. As you point out, um, there, is, there are specific sort of material practices and broader cultural significance of altars, right, in Mexican culture. Um, but how, are, how do you see these, and most of these are physical altars, right, would you right. say, but how do you see the, the continuities and the differences between those sort of physical altars and the case of digital altars, especially when we think about it from your respect in terms of the experience of what that altar means and what that does? Right. And um, it's interesting that this digital altar happened at the time that it did, because I'm seeing a lot more digital altar projects happening with artists now. Hmm. Um, and so it, I think it is something worth further studying in my own work. Um, I, I'm trained in theology, so uh, I had to rethink what an altar meant and what it did signify. Um, significant things about altars, especially in Latin America and in Mexican um, theological practice, uh, practices, the materiality of the altar is filled with the divine. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things I'm wrestling with in, in my own work, uh, and you can see, I feel, I hope, <laughs> you can see uh, bits of the ways I'm struggling with this in, in this article, of then what does that mean when we put it on a digital platform? What does what is digital material? And this is way beyond my training as I am not from the digital humanities. And so, but I, it's forcing me to have to rethink what, you know, a candle feels like and, you know, just there's a difference. And, and I just felt like it's, for me, it it felt like it cheapened the these tri these tributes, even though these were notable journalists um, that had been covering this type of violence and writers. Um, but it just seemed like it was more cheapened, um, and you know who had access to this. Um, it also assumed a certain class level, like. If the who is going to access this? Like these are most of these migrants are migrating to the U.S. for more opportunities, primarily economic opportunities. Like, are the families of these? Do the families of these victims even have internet or a computer to access this digital altar that is commemorating their loved ones? Like, um, 
so these are the questions that go through my mind of, well, if this is the purpose of an altar, can a digital altar truly do this duty of what an altar is supposed to do? Right. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that now artists are moving into doing different versions of a digital mm -hmm. altar, right? Um, it, a lot of the, I would say from a sort of digital media perspective, a lot of the argument would be about certainly the digital altar won't replicate a lot of the physical materiality, uh, right? Even like the weight of the candle and the lighting of the candle in the altar could, cannot be replicated in just buying a candle for right. for the digital altar, right? Which could be swapped for any other right. token. I mean, I freaked out enough when the Catholic church switched to like eco-friendly candles where you just deposit a coin and push a switch. Right. So, I mean, that change in technology disrupted my soul. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, maybe we could, even we could argue some of the meaning is transposed into that. But as you point out, there's there's a lot of the meaning attached to the very physicality mm -hmm. of holding the object and lighting the object, right? right. Um, so all of that might not be um, replicated sufficiently in any way. Exactly. Um, but the the fact that it is a digital altar living on the internet um, mm -hmm. broadly also brings up the question, as you point out, of of, of the public, right? So right. who is this altar for? Um, if we think of historically altars being done, for, perhaps say for like a member of a family, mm -hmm. and it's done in in the living room, and so people who knew that person are the ones bringing the things to it. Here, it's opened up to broad public uh, who may have no connection to to the people being memorialized. Exactly. Um, and, and the people being memorialized may have no connection to that altar too, right? So what is it doing is, is kind of a, um, an important critical question to ask of it. Right. And I mean, and again, still stems from this, I, this concept of gore capitalism, like who's going to this website to consume this? Like, uh, yeah. so... Yeah, it's a very different relationship to the dead uh, when it is the like bringing the candle to the altar of someone you know versus the like I just want to go see the digital altar of these people that I had no little connection with and just consuming their um, grief. Their death. Yeah. yeah, and the grief of those. Right. Yeah, yeah. So one of the key aspects, and you point this from the beginning of the article um, by talking about the the um, the picture of this of this young kid. Um, it's not only that it was this this project, and because it was coming from a massacre, death is sort of, the question of death uh, surrounds it. But it's particularly the question of black death mm -hmm. um, that very much in, embeds all of this. So, could we begin generally by talking about how do you, how do you in the article, or how do we generally talk about blackness in Mexico uh, in Mexican culture, um, either historically or contemporarily? Well, it depends who we're asking. If we're asking academics, it's been discussed anthropologically. Like, mm -hmm. these communities exist and, you know, it is, and these are their practices and beliefs and customs and, and whatnot. Um, you know, that, that lends itself to being studied uh, from a historical perspective. You know, what are the stories about their past that we're going to um, pass on and from whose perspective and whatnot? But that predominantly has been the the academic take on blackness in Mexico. Um, you know, we've always known that Afro-Mexicans exist, uh, but 
I mean, it was just something in the back of our mind. Rather, it was colorism that, that we had to worry about less so. And so if a person was darker skinned, and this is colloquially um, throughout Mexico and um, U.S. Mexican cultures is, you know, they, they would call them um, Indio at times. And, or a person would defend themselves for having dark skin by saying, like that they're more Indio, they have more Indian blood in them because it was much more preferable to at least associate yourself with indigeneity than blackness. Um, you know, there there is a long history of racism um, between, uh, uh, well, I mean, racism and colorism in both Mexico and the United States. So, uh, you know, they there has to be a way of getting out of this identity of blackness yeah, it's 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 a, a series of problematics tied into each other, right? Right. Um, I think one of the the sort of the legacy of mestizaje and the like this idea of a mixture between the like white Europeans and the indigenous populations and how now everyone is quote unquote just mixed has done a lot to paper over the the literal existence of Afro-Mexicans, for example, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then the question of race more um, explicitly versus the versus talking about colorism, right? Right. And, well, you know, one of the debates that um, is starting to spark among uh, Mexican cultural studies and Latin American cultural studies is whether or not this clinging to mestizaje, if it's... Uh, an avoidance of your of an aspiration to claim whiteness, mm -hmm. um, you know, has this just be, become a stand-in for your whiteness that you feel too guilty about identifying with whiteness that mestizaje allows you to benefit in the same ways that white privilege extends itself. Right, right. It's a it, it could be mobilized in some way as like having your cake and eating it too, right? Exactly. It's a it's a way to say no, we're not white, but at the same time, it's an aspirational. Uh, gesture right towards that right? we're not white but we're also not way too indian so yeah. i mean right yeah yeah and a lot of that what it does similarly to um the sort of spectacular accusation of debt is in this case it erases um the presence of black people in mexico mm -hmm. and it erases the the not having to contend with that at all exactly um, i think you so you even mentioned this at the beginning where um because the title of your article is what where blackness dies, you say you even at a discursive level, blackness dies upon just like trying to talk about it in Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. When it moves into the Hispanic tongue. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? You mentioned that you're using the translation Lo Negro as a sort of stand-in, but mm -hmm. still have reservations about how much that captures what um, in English blackness sort of captures and alludes to. You know, we've heard La Negritud. Okay, that literally translates, though, to negritude, which is an entirely different theoretical genealogy. Right. Um, and mostly leading to French Blackness. And so, um, and the French Caribbean. So that's one aspect of, of why I feel that that word has been insufficient in my own word. Um, and uh, lo negro... Um, like I say in the article, it is a cop-out, lo negro. The use of lo and whatever thing else we use afterwards is the equivalent of like the ways we would say in English, like, you know, like 
I guess, blackness or like the the the, the concept of like could we say like lo normal, so like the normal. Yeah. Um, so it operates sort of like on on that level in the English language. And I just recently read an article, I think it was a couple weeks ago, that used negrismo. And I think we may be, I may be onto something with that one, but I haven't quite decided yet. I, I still need to figure out what the implications of ismo would mean and what that does. Right. But uh, that being said, yes, of course, it dies the second we try to speak about it in Spanish. Um that being said, it also reveals something that the English language can do that Spanish cannot. Right. And that is English allows us to keep coming up with jargon and concepts in a way <laughs> that um, becomes untranslatable. And so uh, that's where we're finding these, these tensions. And I think that relates to the question you had just asked right before this is, how do we talk about Blackness? Well, I don't know. We can't you know, agree to a term in Spanish. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, on a, on a practical level, it's a, it's a translational problem in that we, we don't know how to translate that or have the word to, do, to say the things that we want to say as, let's say, academic strain in English language um, scholarship, right? right. Um, but I guess the, the flip side of that or the productive generative aspect of... Um, of translation is that it reveals those gaps, right? So we make mm -hmm. something of the fact that we don't have a word and from there start to think about like, well, why don't we? And one of the mm -hmm. the answers where you pointed out earlier is because we haven't talked about this, right? right? Because anthropologists have a sense of talking specifically about blackness from like the colonial period where it was like slaves were very much, mm -hmm. black slaves were very much different from uh, indigenous uh, communities. And, um, and um, historians may have that too. But mm -hmm. when we think about it now, when we think about it, say from like a critical theory perspective and trying to, to theorize the contemporary, we're, we're lacking the vocabulary. And part of it might just be because we haven't started doing that work, right? Of coming right. up with that critical vocabulary. And then for me, it, it becomes less of a question of, do I really need to translate it? Or, you know, is it, do I really need that word? Or do I, what I need to translate are experiences and feelings. Mm -hmm. That's the project for me. Um, you know, yes, we'll come up with a word eventually, and maybe we won't. But at the end of the day, what needs to be translated are the experiences associated with this concept that doesn't have a name, um, right. but that we will call blackness. <laughs> you know, I, I ran into this as a queer theorist, and, you know, where we, still in the queer theory, we're still, and those of us who are uh, bilingual, are still arguing over the accurate <laughs> translation of queer. And it's like, yeah. I mean, do we yeah. need a word? Absolutely. But there's so, as when we talk about discourse as academics, there's so much more that emerges discursively by the fact that we don't have a word. Right, right. Yeah, the, the gaps become so, mm -hmm. so generative in them Precisely. Yeah. And, I mean, to, to your point about do we need the word that is translated, I think the the analysis that you do in this article shows us that perhaps sometimes we don't. And that's because mm -hmm. you are drawing on um, theorists and writers who have theorized blackness in, let's say, the North American, the US context, um, mm -hmm. Anglo context. And a lot of their insights and a lot of their terms 
are helpful for how you think about the uh, 72 migrants uh, project, right? Right. So two of them that, that struck out to me, and if you could talk a little bit more about how you um, borrow these concepts from, from the writers is pornotroping, which you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, um, from Hortense Spillers, and The Hold, um, which you, you draw from Christina Sharp. So how do these help you, how do these theorizations of blackness from the sort of US angle perspective also help you make sense of what the, uh, the Senate to Migrants project is doing? What resonated with my analysis was Afro-pessimism and, and thinkers within Afro-pessimism. And just to summarize what, what Afro-pessimism is, uh, it is a school of thought within Black studies. Um, that that links blackness to to slavery to to slaveness um precisely because there was never this prior meta moment for blackness um and yeah so i benefited from language from spillers from sharp um and in my broader work uh you know from wilderson um and uh so many others Fanon, uh, which you know that all of this leads back to. You know, we're looking at overall a spectacularization of black violence. That one black violence happens. Black bodies are dying. They keep dying, and uh, and we have it's become a spectacle precisely through that consumption um, to the point of a fetish even, and to the point that these objects are just reduced on the bare flesh. And so that reduction is sexualized. Um, again, because there is no prior meta moment for blackness, this is able to happen. Yeah. Um, and so what does that mean when we have the corpse, the victim, the body, um, that is always already associated with slaveness, then what does it mean to remember this body, to have them and to be in the wake with these themes as Christina Sharp talks about? Uh, in other words, what does it mean to tend to our dead? You know, and one of the things for Sharp is, is underlining that, uh, you know, with, within these larger themes, uh, there is this concept of the hold that she theorizes of this moment in the, in the ship, in the belly of the ship in the mid-Atlantic um, transport of, of this waiting space of just waiting for this impending violence that was always already promised to blackness. And so, you know, when we think about the, um, you know, the crib, the prison timeline that is often associated with black youth, um, you know, black, because of this type of black violence and the death that surrounds blackness, there, the concept of a black child doesn't exist um, because it's never afforded, a future is never afforded to those, um, to those children. So the, the language I gathered from those types of thinkers in Black studies is what I found most useful in my work. Right, right. And even the, yeah, I think the, it's powerful that you start with that picture of um, Junior Alexander, right? Mm -hmm. um, as, as a way to then come back to it, to think through these concepts in the way that like for the black child in this case, um, this there's no future other than, it was a picture of him at his father's funeral, which already sort of presages the fact 
that the mm-hmm. future that was promised for him is, was to be killed at early in life, which he does, right? Because right. that's why uh, he was one of the people massacred in, in Tamaulipas. And the, therefore, that's when the image comes up to memorialize them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the that image sort of is holding that, I don't know if it's circular logic, but that sort of timeline in and of itself already. Right. I mean, it's as... Um... I kept thinking about that that photo. I was like, this this photo has a huge burden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's we are expecting this photo to do so much. And uh and one of the things is precisely as what you described, this this circulation uh, of the context, and then yeah, it, it just it this photo just has way too much. And it's like at what point is it no longer about the like is it about the subject of the photo? What pressures are we putting on this child to represent? Um, and, you know, and the things that he is representing and that this photo is representing, it's gore and it's not, you know, it's, it's, it is negativity at the end. It, yeah. it is a future where blackness dies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you point out, there's, the other picture, which so this one is about Junior Alexander, and it's and it's asked to represent so much mm-hmm. by the creators of the digital altar. Um, then there's the picture that is not assigned to it's assigned to one of the migrants, but it's not of them. But mm-hmm. it is of a, a black man, just meant to signify black migrants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that one's doing the opposite, which is the the sort of assuming the. Um, indistinguishability, right? Or the fact that, well, these, this was someone who died. So we can just flopping that picture and then write something about it or reminisce or, I don't know, poeticize about that experience. Right. I mean, and I wonder because this is not answered by Alma Guillermo Prieto and anything that I have found is they did want 72 photos. So they did ask, uh, uh, a limited number of uh, photographers who ha- who document these uh, m- migrations of Central American migrants making their their journey to the U.S. So photojournalists and, and whatnot mm-hmm. to contribute to the project. But I, like, I wonder: is it because we didn't want because of the dearth of family photos? Did we not want there to like? only be so many with a family photo and a lot without like I and what like like you said like these are just placeholders yeah yeah well I mean you pointed to two crucial issues about why um at least as, as you're arguing the the digital altar just falls short so much and that one is the so many of the decisions were we could say even purely aesthetic decisions, right? Like we want to have 72 photographs, even if they're not photographs of the 72 people, we just want 72 to match the number, um, does a disservice to what do you want those pictures to do, right? Can we just swap in any picture of a train track? Um, And the other one, um, I think it's implicit, but it's the the Mexicanness of it all, right? Mm -hmm. The, The fact that it was created by Mexican journalists and writers, and yes, it was a massacre in Mexico, but one of the, the crucial issues to think about this is a lot of, I don't know if, I don't remember if all of them, but a lot of the people who died were uh, migrants f- uh, mm-hmm. crossing through Mexico, right? They were coming from 
um, Central American countries on their mm-hmm. way to the U.S. Right. So it reinforces in some way the what is already the mediating function that Mexico does in terms mm-hmm. of thinking the rest of the continent in relation to the U.S., right? Like, why is it that it is Mexican writers and journalists who get to tell these stories of um, the dead Central American migrants? Right. And, and, and the service is, is definitely the right word, um, especially when you just keep, you know, following the domino effect of everything that all of this represents. And it's like, even if this is sort of like on behalf of Mexicans, we are sorry. Um, <laughs> and here are families of the, the victims um, who may or may not be able to access this website. Um, we are sorry. Uh, it's, I mean... It's imperialistic. It's uh, it's class based. Uh, it's it's a problem. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and increasingly becoming a problem too. In that um, now, all the focus on the Mexican southern border as the as being militarized and transformed into that first sort of threshold, like just replicating everything that. Mexican academics, Mexican art activists and writers have been critiquing about the U.S. southern border um, and the dangers of that has now been transported to the southern U.S., uh, the southern Mexican border. So how do we contend with that uh, and beyond just, as you say, a sort of apology through a digital altar, right? Right. Um, all of those questions are not really answered in, in that format. Mm-hmm. So... One of the sort of broader, um, I would say, interventions or that you you point at, uh, speaking about we that we don't have the language or that we are contending still with how to address blackness from a, a Mexican perspective. Um, you, you mentioned that you want to sort of resituate this Mexican case within a hemispheric framework, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a way to sort of think collectively both in Latin America, U.S., about Black studies. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the potentials that you see or the possibilities in, in doing this sort of continental move of, of thinking critically about Blackness in a hemispheric framework um, or comparatively across these different um, histories or different frameworks as well? Yes. Um, and so, I mean, hemispheric studies is primarily about decentralizing, you know, the United States uh, as the anchor of, of how we study uh, the, the Northern Hemisphere to decentralize U.S. and European thinking and, um, you know, to, uh, or the Western Hemisphere, you know, and, and to account for the Global South. Uh, it is about decentralizing U.S. imperialism in terms of what thought looks like. Um, and so... That being said, if the project is not about my dependency to find an accurate translation of this work, um, but to do the translation of experience, of feelings, of how this work travels, of how this work is surrounded by other material worlds, then once we decentralize this work, we're able to like 
to borrow um, from other languages, uh, not in a way that just simply takes something and just applies it or something that we could just use at our own will and when it's not ours to be using, but rather that, no, these are larger conversations that have already been happening and we just have not made the link between them. Right. Um, and so myself as, uh, you know, and I feel this on a personal level as a scholar that um, has dual citizenship to Mexico in the United States of just, you know, my experiences with these themes in Mexico are different, are not so different than the way I experience them in the U.S. For some they are, but, uh, so for some they're not, but, um, or vice versa. But I, uh, you know, the, the language I use is, it comes from both sides. And so it, it in some ways it, uh, it is, decolonizing that border way of thinking right right yeah and because i think as you point out the the move towards hemispheric thinking allows those connections to be made and allows mm -hmm. that that um borrowing is the right word not the right word but the the bringing in of terms that have already been thought through in mm -hmm. particular contexts and how those rub up or, or help us make sense of experiences in other places right right uh, which is very different than the sort of standard way that we think of academic imperialism of, oh, there's all this Western theory and we're just applying it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as you point out with thinking about pornotroping, for example, is there is something there about these similar ways of thinking and consuming Black death in these two different national contexts that maybe mm -hmm. should point us to maybe not thinking in those national contexts, but thinking more broadly about how these... Um, trends and ideologies are replicated um, exactly across the continent yeah right so how have you built or expanded on this work since its publication yes so um i just kept letting my research lead me where it was going to uh, where it was going to take me so i was following these threads of how do i interpret blackness and how does that relate to my large, like, this, how does that relate to my larger interests within performance studies and career mm -hmm. theory? Um, so I, I found myself uh, drawn to Black artists in Latin America and Afro-Latin artists and uh, relationships between um, hemispheric uh, Latinx people and Black people um, in terms of how they share space. And so... Uh, this has led to my what will be a second book project on um, Black music um, in in a Latinx context. So, uh, so I'm excited to pursue that, and then and that is going to be very much a um, a hemispheric project. I'm thinking through artists in Brazil, Mexico, and the United States, um, and the, oh, and the Caribbean. Um, so. Yeah, I'm, so I'm just excited to see where this work is taking me. And, um, you know, I remain interested in these themes of death and blackness. Um, and so, you know, I, I have found artists, or rather these artists in some sense found me, their work has found me, um, that I think presents itself as, a, as generous case studies for me to think through these questions. Simara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me as a guest. 
This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu, and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.